Well, good evening. It's good to see you all tonight. And uh, given that this is my first sermon to preach to you in 2014, and that we often use the turn in the calendar year uh, to evaluate our lives and reassess the way that we're living and what our dreams and hopes are for the year and the way that we want to live, then uh, I would like to use tonight to share with you some of my heart for this community and for all of us, for you and for me, um, as a community of God's people and how we might live. So to do that, we're going to dig in tonight to Psalm 16, one of my favorite psalms in all the Psalter, and you all should have a copy of this, I hope, with you, a little square piece of paper, a rectangular piece of paper, um, both so that you can follow along as we walk through the psalm tonight, uh, but also, and perhaps more importantly, I'm hoping that you'll stick this into your pocket or your purse or your wallet, carry it around with you over the next week or two, and memorize this psalm as um, a way of writing it onto your heart. I think it would be well worth the time that you have to spend. I don't know if any of you are practicing much scripture memory in your life. Um, I'm sure all, many of you have at some point, at one point or another, but I would encourage you to put this psalm on your heart because it's well worth it. We're going to talk about what does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to be a people of faith? What does that look like? Moving into this year together as a community at Church of the Cross. There are five lessons that I want to draw out from Psalm 16. And, uh, and I hope and pray that these lessons inform your life and your year in many ways. The first one of them is basic and foundational. It's in a sense, it's the kind of, the, the, the foundation is laid and the other four begin to build upon that. So that's what we're going to do. Five things, Psalm 16, thinking about your life of faith in this year ahead. So the first lesson in this psalm, verses 1 and 2. So I want you to have this out in front of you. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. It's a lesson about exclusive dependency. This is about taking refuge in God, which is a way of saying that we entrust the entirety of our lives into his care, into his hands. The whole of our being belongs to him. We could say that the ground of our lives is God himself. The original meaning of this word that is translated refuge means to hide oneself. So we're hiding ourselves in this God, taking shelter in him. So the Psalter begins with two introductory psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 ends, so the introduction to the psalms ends with these words, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And then Psalm 16 opens with the claim of the psalmist to do exactly that, to be one of the blessed, one of the ones who takes refuge in God. You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you, I take refuge in you. So the psalmist speaks about doing this exclusively. I have no good, he says, apart from you. Uh, Many of you have been into our home in Jamaica Plain, and it's a rather tall and skinny house as far as houses go. So two of our daughters live on the third floor in bedrooms up there, and uh, we began to be a little bit concerned about their safety in the case of a fire. Uh, Well, actually, we've been concerned for a while, but we began to act on that concern. So over Christmas break, we did some research, and we bought our uh, two older daughters that live on the third floor some exit escape ladders. These are ladders made out of some webbing and aluminum that you can throw out the window to escape from the third floor in the event 
that your primary exit is blocked by fire or smoke. You should always have two exits, just so you know, from any place where you live. The point here, in opposite sense, is that for a lot of us, we tend to have lots of little escape ladders in terms of the way that we ground our lives and the significance of our lives other than God himself. It's not that we don't have the main passageway out of the room, the the, the main staircase that goes down, but it's that we start to build these kind of other ways of getting out, these other ways of bringing significance and security and meaning to our lives that we begin to kind of lean upon. And so we begin to, to hedge our bets, so to speak. And say, well, yeah, you know, my life in God really is everything to me. But somehow, some way, my relationships or family or gifting or career or a particularly charming personality trait that I might have begins to ground who I am. And instead of God and God alone, these other escape routes become, in a sense, our good. And when they do, we can't really be faithful to the God who made us, because there will often be a conflict. So this is why Jesus says to us, count the cost before you come and follow me. Count the cost. And he says it in really radical words. If anyone comes to me, Luke 14, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There can be no other good, Jesus is saying, in the sense that your life is grounded in something other than God himself. However, God-given And good, that other thing may be. Elsewhere, Jesus says it like this. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money being one of those escape routes that we often ground our being in. So the psalmist is saying this refuge in God is exclusive. But it's also to be personal. Look at verse 2. He says, I say to the Lord, you are what? You are my Lord, my Lord. Faith is never detached or cerebral. Our heart is always involved in this relatedness to the God who made us, even for the most intellectually oriented among us. Augustine, I would put to you, is the greatest example of this, one of the greatest intellects of all time, who had a warmth of faith and devotion and yearning for his God. So we're invested, we're engaged, all of us. This faith is a very personal reality. So this personal and exclusive taking refuge in God, this kind of faith or trust, then expresses itself in the opening and only prayer of Psalm 16, which is the the way that the psalm begins. Preserve me, O God. Or to put this in more vernacular terms, I've put all my eggs in your basket and I'm counting on you. I need you, I trust you, I belong to you. Preserve me. Keep me, sustain me. This world is often quite hard. You know that. I know that from experience. We all often feel that battle between light and darkness in our bones day after day. We experience that tug of war, that pull and that push. We experience the power of skepticism and sin. Preserve me, O God. This is the cry of faith. All of my goodness is in you. All of my good, my hope for life, my hope for ongoing sustenance is in you. According to one of his interpreters, Kierkegaard's basic formula for faith was this. One is a creature who can do nothing. But one exists over against a living God for whom everything 
is possible. And that everything that is possible with this God that we serve is possible on my behalf and on your behalf as those who exclusively belong to him. We've seen, unlike the psalmist who writes these words, we've seen the faithfulness of God expressed climactically in the sending of his son Jesus to live, die, and rise again on our behalf. And we trust him. That's what's behind this prayer of faith. Preserve me. Preserve me. And here's what all of this means for you and for me in our lives today. God isn't simply a sidebar or some kind of side attraction. Nor is God primarily the object of our scrutiny. Nor is he the defendant who must face all of our accusations because of life not being what we want it to be. Instead, in faith, God is to be our all and our everything, the ground of our being to whom we're personally and exclusively related. Now, of course, does this mean that we can't wrestle and struggle with the difficulties and challenges of life, with the ways in which we suffer and those that we love suffer? Of course not. The Psalms are exhibit A of proof that it's right and good for us as human beings to struggle. But it means that as we do engage in that wrestling and that struggling that is human experience, that we do so not with God on the periphery or God under our microscope, but with God right at the heart and at the center and the ground and foundation of our being. This is what it means to have faith. So let me ask then, when and how can we see that this is the case in our lives? When when can we see that we have this kind of exclusive dependency upon the Lord that we read about in these first two verses of Psalm 16? And I want to just suggest, there's a lot that could be said about this, but I want to suggest one way of thinking about this for a moment. Often we see it right in the midst of suffering. I would define suffering in some ways as this, in getting what I do not want, Or losing what I had and loved. Getting what I do not want. Or losing what I had or loved. Be that my health or loved ones or job or any other number of things. Do I still have any semblance of peace or contentment or trust in the midst of these moments? In the duration through these moments. It's not as if just at any moment or any day that we should be testing ourselves in this way, but in the duration of walking through these moments in our lives. Often, of course, there are places and times when all we can do is just breathe and trust in the faith of the community that's gathered around us and supporting us. But suffering doesn't have a way of loosening our ties upon those things that would become the ground of our being that are other than God himself. And therefore, as it loosens our ties upon those things, strengthening are clinging to the God who alone can be the foundation and ground of our being. First Peter speaks about this, the trials that reveal the tested genuineness of our faith, that we have no good apart from God. This was true for Jesus, and if tradition is right, it was true for Peter and for Paul, and we know it was true for John the Baptist and for Stephen, and for many saints down the ages who have suffered and whose lives have often ended in difficult suffering. The question I want to ask is, is it true for us? Is it true for you? Is it true for me? Is God our only good, our refuge, the sole ground of our being? This is what it means to trust, to take refuge, to have faith. So the next things begin to follow out from there. And the second thing that we see is that this refuge in God, these are verses 3 and 4, 
leads us or requires of us to say no. When we say yes, that God is our refuge, it requires a saying no to other things. That is, it requires a separation. So there's some textual uncertainty in verses 3 and 4 about what is not uncertain. So if you look at a lot of different English translations, you'll see these verses translated a little bit differently. But what is clear is at the end of verse 4 that the psalmist is, is distancing himself from idolatry and false worship. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. When we have an exclusive dependency upon God, there will follow a rejection of the things that God rejects. That is, the yes to God requires a no. And this no is based not on my preferences and what I think is great and not so great, but upon God's preferences and what God has declared to be good and not good. So, for example, saying yes to this exclusive allegiance and dependency upon the Lord requires saying no to sexual immorality, to unforgiveness, to holding grudges, to dishonesty, to twisting the truth with white lies and creating little harmless practices in our conversation in life, to greed and a kind of acquisitiveness, to the grounding of our beings on things that are lesser goods than God himself. All of these things have to be rejected. They have to, we have to say no to these things. And it's not a trifling matter, but it's something of the utmost seriousness and significance for us. Too often, too often in the world, and I really want us to wrestle with this for a moment, but too often in the world, there's a sense of saying yes to God without having to say no to anything else. This is very true of the church in the West. We demand the blessing of God, but we ignore the requirement of repentance. God bless me as I am, where I am. But it's always been repent and believe. Turn around. Turn away. Say no to something. Something that maybe we previously cherished before we said yes to God. It requires a reorientation. And the blessing and the life of God is, flows into his children as they repent and believe. As they say no and yes at the same time. And we also need to recognize, and we come to learn this clearly in the scriptures, that this saying no, however much it may cut against the grain of our cultural lenses or our cultural moment, the things that we're called to say no to, is not to destroy our joy, but it's to bolster our life. It's to enable us to run and to be free. The Proverbs often compares the path of the righteous like a a wide highway in which you can run and the path of the wicked like a path overgrown with thorn bushes that you can't get through. Hebrews picks up that same idea and says, let us throw off the sin that clings so closely or so easily entangles that we might run with endurance the race set before us. In other words, this saying no, hard as it may be sometimes for us, and much as it may sometimes offend our own sensibilities, as we yield exclusively to him and we begin to trust him and we say no to these things, it actually leads us down this path of life and flourishing and joy to which we're called in God. So here's the question then, coming out of the second one. What is it in our lives? What is it it in your life that God is asking you to say no to this year? as a result of your exclusive 
allegiance or dependence upon him? Are there habits? Are there ways of thinking? Or or even just little indulgences that have crept under our radar that need to be cut out? Saying yes requires saying no. It's as if, though, then the psalmist picks up this thought in verses 5 and 6 as a kind of said no to something. And he comes back to reaffirming the yes. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is a, a lesson, in a sense, about contentment. Having said no to these things, no to the things that maybe he previously cherished, The psalmist reaffirms that the Lord is his portion. And this means that he's pleased with what he has. God is enough. I follow uh, Robert Alter's comment about verse 6, an Old Testament scholar, who suggests that the lines that have fallen for him in pleasant places and the beautiful inheritance that he's celebrating is not actually uh, terrestrial things, but it's God himself, his chosen portion, his cup. This is his great possession. And because the God who is his possession holds him securely, you hold my lot, or another way of translating that is you sustain my fate. Because God holds what I cannot determine with any level of security or certainty, which is my my present circumstances and my future circumstances. These things that I try so desperately and hard to manipulate and form to my own liking, I can't. But because this God who is my portion holds these things so tightly and holds me in them, then I can rest in them. I can rest in what my life is in this moment today. Because God is my inheritance. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that you are Christ's, Christ is God's, and that therefore all things are yours. Belonging to God is everything. This frees us up to contentment. 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. And that same sentiment is expressed here. There's confidence in the fact that this God holds me. So here's the question then, what is it in your life that God has given to you that you're pushing back on? Is there something in your circumstances, a present assignment from God, a relationship or a lack of a relationship that you don't like, that we complain about, or that just sours our perspective? about how much we truly hold and have and possess in him. This psalm encourages us to a joyful perspective on our present lot, to a kind of contentment that only belongs to those who have yielded themselves exclusively to the Lord. And of course, we can move forward. We can work for change. This isn't about a a defeated yielding to less than ideal circumstances, especially if the Lord is calling us in these ways. But we all know the difficulty and the challenge of resting and of receiving the present that God has given us, which is the only moment in time that we actually have. So then, the fourth lesson, verses 7 and 8, about this expectation and experience of counsel as well as confidence. 
that belongs to those who rest upon the Lord. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. God watches over us at the deepest place. This idea of my heart instructing me at night is really the word there is kidneys. I don't know why it's kidneys, but that's the way the Hebrews thought about it. And this is a region of the body over which God watches and sees. And so it's not necessarily implying self-instruction, but that God sees us in these deepest places and guides us through in these deepest places of our being. We need guidance desperately, don't we? We need to know where to walk. We need to know how to walk, what to walk toward. And this psalm says to us that the man or the woman of faith experiences the counsel of God in the present. Moving us forward, instructing us. But here's the the kick on this one. To hear, and this rhymes so you can remember it. To hear, we must be near. To hear God, we have to be near. I have set the Lord always before me. Which is to say this. It is to say that if God remains simply on the periphery of our lives and we yell at him and complain about not hearing his voice, then we need to turn back the examination upon ourselves. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And of course, God has drawn near to all of us in the sending of Jesus. But there is this need in response to God's drawing near for us to then draw near to him, to remain close to him. Psalm 16 often gets compared to Psalm 73. And in the final verse of Psalm 73, the psalmist says this, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. To make God his refuge is to be near to God. That's why the psalmist says, I've set the Lord always before me. He is my refuge, my everything, my all. That means I've set him always before me. I don't just appeal to him maybe a month down the road or a week down the road, but always before me. And when this happens, there is great confidence. I shall not be shaken, which reminds me of Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil For you are with me, your rod and your staff, that is guidance and counsel and direction and discipline and admonition, they comfort me. That's the idea being presented here. So here's the question, will we we draw near to him in 2014? In habitual and routine and regular ways, will we draw near to God? Proverbs 8 at the end, wisdom is speaking and and wisdom says, blessed is the one who listens to me watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. And you get this idea throughout the Proverbs. Daily is the key word. Coming near, drawing near. We need this regular drawing near in our lives. Or we can't expect to hear his counsel. And we desperately need his counsel. So this is the people of God habitually, routinely, gathering on Sundays in worship, gathering in smaller groups throughout the week, gathering with God on our own time in a regular way to draw near to him, to hear him, to listen to him, to understand him. And in so doing, then to experience 
his counsel and his confidence that brings us boldness and security and determinedness in our lives as we move forward step by step. And we'll conclude with this final lesson. So the person of exclusive dependency, this is the person of faith that leads to a saying no to certain things. That leads us to a present kind of contentment because God holds our lot. That leads us to hearing his counsel and to the boldness that comes from his presence being with us, in us, and among us. This then leads us to this final thing, the last three verses of this psalm, to great joy. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And then these great final words, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. With God as our refuge, the promise of this psalm is joy, life, pleasures that never end. Now the psalmist didn't have a worked out doctrine of resurrection, but it's no mistake that Peter quotes this verse at the, in Acts chapter 2, the first ever Christian sermon, when he speaks of the resurrection of God's son Jesus. Because that's what's in seed form here at the end of Psalm 16. God will be faithful to the end. This is Jesus saying to the woman at the well, that living water will spring up in you to eternal life. This is the joy that we long for, the life that we long for, that comes to those who cling exclusively to this God who made us, who yield to him, whose lives are grounded in him. There's no escape route. There's no other exit but they cohere in him. This exclusive dependence, this saying no, this contentment, this counsel, this confidence. This is my hope for us as a people that this faith displayed in Psalm 16 would be ours. I know we're all different. I know we all move about in different ways and I know that we all relate to God in slightly different ways. But these things are true. And real. Let's walk in him in this way. To not do so is to have those sorrows multiply, as the psalmist says in verse 3. And that's contrasted with this joy and pleasure forevermore that comes to those who stand upon Jesus and him alone. Amen.